think from time to time, uh, you have heard me speak about uh, my old dog Rex. My old dog Rex, which was a black Labrador Doberman mix. The craziest dog I've ever been acquainted with. Unruly, undisciplined, would not listen to anybody. In fact, his favorite thing to do was to break his chain, carry his chain with him, and race up and down the street on which we lived, bothering the chickens and the cats, and every stray person who was walking down the street. And the only way we could ever get that dog back into our house was to open the front door so that he would run into the house. And the reason why that would grab his attention is because he never was allowed in the house. In fact, growing up, we never knew of people who had dogs in the house. He was kind of crazy, and you wouldn't have wanted him in there anyway. Every time he would come into the house, after racing up and down the street, he would drag that chain across the living room and across all the beds and the sofas and with muddy paws and make everything filthy in just a matter of moments. Uh, the dog was certifiably crazy. And so you, you, of course, can understand in my surprise as I went to my aunt and uncle's house as a small child and uh, was surprised to find that they had a dog in the house. And not only was the dog in the house, the dog was treated really like another member of the family. And as dinner time would roll around, this little dog named Snoopy would come up and he would sit right at my uncle's feet. And as my uncle would eat dinner, he would drop food off the table for this little dog Snoopy. I marveled at that. That little dog had become a member of the family. Fascinatingly, here in our passage in Mark chapter 7, this woman comes to Jesus... And after begging and pleading and appealing with Jesus for mercy, uh, Jesus tells her that it's not right to throw food to the dogs. And this woman, to show her faith and to show her humility and her submission to the Lord, says, yes, Lord, but even the crumbs fall off the table for the feeding. In other words, she places herself in the position of a dog and saying, I will be happy with the overflow of your grace if you will just allow me a place underneath your table. I want to look at this woman, this marvelous, beautiful Syrophoenician woman, Examine this morning with you uh, this great example of faith and character. And first of all, as we plunge into this narrative of appeal and then of miracle, we'll notice that Jesus had intentionally withdrawn himself. You see that in verse 24. It says, Jesus got up and he went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he got into the house, he wanted no one to know of it. Uh, Jesus here presents the first obstacle to this uh, healing miracle or this exorcism miracle is that he goes into Tyre, or Tyre, however you like to say it, which is outside of the bounds of Israel, and he withdrew himself and he determined or he intended to escape notice by the people. In other words, Jesus didn't want anybody coming. He didn't even want this woman finding him. You say, well, why would Jesus intentionally withdraw himself from the people? And the answer is because he's been busy. If you go back to chapter 6, beginning with verse 7, you'll notice there that Jesus has sent the twelve out for missionary activity. And we're told that they were paired up and they were sent throughout the land of Israel to proclaim the gospel. And when they came back, 
uh, they began to report uh, a whole series of incidents when people were healed, demons were cast out, and great works of the Lord. Yet, when they came back, it says that Jesus tried to take them away to a secluded place. In other words, Jesus realized that they were exhausted from ministry. So in verse 31 of chapter 6, he says, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place, and we will rest for a while. Well, no sooner did Jesus try to take these disciples to a secluded place, but the people find him. By the way, why would they be finding Jesus? It's because Jesus was known to be someone who was accessible and open to people's needs. He lived around them, he ministered among them, and he helped them. And so people were flocking to Jesus, and so much so that we're told towards the end of that chapter there, that the people followed him into the middle of basically a wilderness. They had no food to eat. The Word of God says, so like Jesus, he was moved with compassion as he looked at the sheep as they were without a shepherd. And of course, you know the story there of Jesus dividing up five loaves and two fishes and feeding 5,000 people with bread and sardines. Well, no longer did Jesus send those people away and that he tries again to go into hiding with the disciples so they can have a moment of rest. We're told at the end of chapter 6 in Gennesaret, once the people found out that Jesus was in the neighborhood, they gathered all of their friends and neighbor and sick people that they knew, and here they are coming to Jesus again. Everywhere Jesus is turning with his disciples, they are constantly being bombarded with requests for help. It appears then, towards the uh, end of this time of ministry, Jesus just uh, frankly is tired and his disciples are tired, so they just leave Israel. They go outside of the borders of Israel to the pagan city of Tyre, And that's where they are hiding themselves. And so this woman somehow hears wind of Jesus' presence, and she comes to him. And I want us to examine her appeal in some detail. Uh, It says in verse 25, After hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. And now notice this. Let's get into the profile of the woman for a minute. She was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. There's a number of details in this profile that I want to examine just for a moment here. Uh, The text goes out of the way, and I'm sure you see that, to make it clear that she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. Specifically, she's of the Syrophoenician race. She is not a proselyte. She is not a God-fearer. She is not somebody that's hanging around the synagogue with the rest of the Jews. When the text identifies her as a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race in the city of Tyre, it's going out of the way to tell you she's a pagan. She has not been catechized in covenant promises. She doesn't know the scriptures. She is not acquainted with Judaism. And she barely even knows who Jesus is. She is a pagan woman. Not only that, she is a woman in distress. Notice here that she said, the text says that she has a little daughter. That's a very excellent translation of the word because it's referring to a young girl, possibly a bit older than a toddler, maybe three or four years old. She has a little daughter who is demon-possessed. Now, if you want to understand how horrific this was, all you have to do is turn over to Mark chapter 9. And think about this now, you parents who have little ones, or, or you remember when your child was small. And you will see why she is gripped with such distress and anxiety. 
We're told in Mark chapter 9 that a man came to Jesus and to his disciples seeking to have uh, his son healed of demonic possession. Now, notice here uh, that, first of all, we're told in verse 17, the possession makes his son mute. He could not speak. And then we are told in verse 20, they brought the boy to Jesus when he saw him. Immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion and falling to the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Then Jesus asked the father, well, how long has this been going on? He says, from childhood. And then verse 22, it says, it has often thrown him both into fire and into water to destroy him. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. Well, whether that is exactly like the conditions this woman's daughter experienced, we must uh, believe, must be led to believe by that, that description, that this is something similar to that that the daughter, this little girl, had been experiencing. And so here she is, driven by maternal instincts, by love for her child, She has nowhere else to go. She has sought probably the priests and priestesses in the temple. She has no doubt offered sacrifices and burnt incense and and done all of the right things in terms of pagan religion to uh, seek release from her distress for her daughter. And here she is gripped with anxiety and deep uh, compassion and concern for her child, so much so that when she comes to Jesus, and she had to go through a great deal of effort to find him, by the way, because he's intentionally hiding. And when she finds him, she falls at his feet and she grabs him in the sense of the passages that she won't stop asking. She grabs his feet and she just continues to plead with him to heal her daughter. It doesn't say it like this here, but in Matthew chapter 15 we're told that as she came to Jesus, by the way Matthew records the very same story there. He presents it in far more dramatic terms, at least in terms of the initial entry. Because we're told there in verse 22 that when she first saw Jesus, when she first found him after all of this searching, she cried out to him, first of all, have mercy. That was the petition. She threw herself at his feet and she said, have mercy on me. And then she said in the next clause, son of David. Son of David, have mercy upon me. She's not coming to Jesus now as simply some sort of a guru or a motivational speaker or some sort of Greek healer. She's coming to him in the name of the Messiah. Son of David is the most uniquely Jewish way to refer to Jesus Christ as Messiah. She's coming to him because not just because he's a miracle worker, not because he's known to have incredible healing powers. She is coming to him now, once as a pagan, unto him for salvation as Messiah saying Christ have mercy for my daughter is severely or cruelly a demon possessed you might say in view of that backdrop why is it or how is it that as a pagan 
as a Greek, as a Gentile, as a Syrophoenician, as one who is not a part of the synagogue, who, who has not been catechized and schooled in even the rudiments of Judaism. How is it that she knows the call of son of David? Well, we're told in verse 25, after hearing of him. After hearing of him. It seems that uh, some of her neighbors had told her. Back in Mark chapter 3, Tyre is singled out particularly as a city from which people came into Israel, having heard of the ministry of Jesus, and they came and they sat under his teaching, and they experienced his healing. And so here is what must have happened. They came back to Tyre, maybe her neighborhoods, maybe her co-workers, perhaps even her family, and they began to explain to her about this Jesus. All of the things that he said, all of the miracles that he performed, all of his uh, character and person, and, and he must have said something to her that was profoundly personal about Jesus. And that, that Jesus is the kind of person you can just come up to. That Jesus is just the, the kind of the kind of pastor, if you will, who, who doesn't hide behind uh, the walls somewhere of a church establishment in an office or, or, or around other people uh, of his kind, of his sophistication, of his culture. He was the kind of person that you could just come right up to and even lay hold of. And they had told her that this Jesus was the Christ. The one in whom the promises were to come to fruition and fulfillment. And so she comes to him now, not as a religious person, not as a psychotherapist, but as a savior. And she says, have mercy. Grant me your grace, your divine, healing, saving grace. And you know what we are told happened after she said that? Matthew 15.23 says that the disciples begged Jesus to send her away. She came to church to receive blessing and grace. And the church said, we don't like your kind here. Go. She came in through the front door and the disciples were willing to throw her out the backside. They didn't want her to be a part of their group. The disciples, the disciples never really come off very good in the Gospels, do they? And you know, that's kind of an interesting fact. Because you know who wrote the Bible? The disciples. The disciples... Uh, are not presented as heroes, and later on as they write these things down for our edification or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and our teaching, they present themselves as they really were. A dim-witted, slow, unbelieving at times, hard-hearted, uncaring, insensitive kind of people who did their best to really keep people away from Jesus when they could. It's a fascinating thing, though, to think about that she comes to the church for help and the church sends her away. Her experience is not at all unlike what many people experience when they go to church today. I've been reading some statistics lately that suggest 
that at least 60% of the people who would call themselves or at least be categorized as unchurched people in America, and that is, by the way, probably over 50 million people, list as a significant reason why they don't go to church is because they've had a very negative, discouraging incident at church. I hope that would never be said about all saints. I hope it would never be said about this church that that people don't return here because they find it unfriendly or unwelcoming. I hope it would never be said here that that, that people are turned away and they don't come back because uh, the people just weren't very loving. They weren't acting very Christian-like. I know people are turned away because they don't like the worship. I've already been told that and I say, okay, I understand that, but we're just following God's rules. I know that people may not like me. They may not like... But, but one thing that I hope that they, they don't walk away saying, I didn't like that about them, is that people drove them away by their stubbornness and their, their unchristian-like, unloving, uncaring attitude. That cannot be the way the church is supposed to be. The disciples are doing something that is bad here. They send her away. They, they beg Jesus to send her away. But, but it is, as difficult as that is, and, and as much of a stumbling block to this woman as that is, what Jesus says is far more difficult. Now I want to take just a moment to, to work through what Jesus says and try to understand it, because uh, this is some of the most difficult um, testimony we have of Jesus in, in the Gospels, frankly. Because, first of all, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, uh, right after she, she throws herself uh, on him and, and, and pleads for mercy and, and calls him the right name and says, you're son of David, and expresses the right desires, that she was a saving grace from him. She's not just interested in healing, but that she wants to know him unto salvation. And, and her daughter too. Uh, Jesus turns to her and he looks at her. And, and the sense of the text is that she has repeatedly said this to him. And after all the begging and the pleading and, and the, the really impassioned communication with Jesus, uh, we're told that Jesus looked her right in the eye and said, Well, frankly, uh, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that's a slam. She's pagan. And Jesus says something that's astonishing to our ears in view of her impassioned plea. He says, I wasn't sent to serve you. I'm not here for you. I was sent to uh, the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, he's saying, I have received a divine commission from the Father. And that commission is to one people and one people only, the biological, covenantal children of Abraham. That was God's order to me. That's what Jesus says. The Father has sent him on a special mission, and he's going to obey his Father rather than men. Well, the order of the text would be something like this, as we combine it with Mark chapter 7 and Mark Matthew 15, that uh, she pleads again, and Jesus gives another response in verse 27. He said to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. 
children. Who are the children? Obviously the children here are the children of Israel. People of the covenant. Particularly in this case, the disciples who Jesus was ministering to. But he says bread. Very important word here, bread. He's not just um, uh, talking about scraps. In other words, he's using the word, the term bread metaphorically. He's, he's referring to covenantal blessings. Remember, she asked for mercy, which is help in a time of distress. And she said, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. She's asking for covenant mercy. She's asking for salvation. She is asking for divine grace. And Jesus turns to her and he calls that now bread. And he says, bread is not for dogs. Of course that means Gentiles. He calls her a dog. Now, we need to think about this a minute because that's a tough line. That's a really tough line. You know, he's basically saying, you're not entitled to my help because you're outside the covenant. Frankly, it sounds so un-Jesus-like. We already walked through through some of the testimony in Matthew, or rather Mark 6, of people thronging to Jesus. And you know what? Uh, If there's one person that it seems like all of us know that we can go to, if there's one person who I would tell anybody who I ever met in a time of distress to go to. It's Jesus. I think everybody seems to... Even people who make no Christian claims are fond of Jesus. And it seems like everybody knows that there's somebody that you can go to in your time of distress. It is Jesus Christ. And, And why is that? It's because the Gospels are full of testimony of the worst kind of people, the most sinful kind of people, the most distressed people, the most anxious people, the people whose lives are disfigured and torn apart and turned upside down. Jesus is always opening arms to them and helping them. We always find Jesus ministering to people. We always find Jesus living among them and being next to them. So much so that he was ridiculed for being a friend of publicans and sinners and drunks. That means he was hanging out with his people. That's why they could identify him with those kinds of people. Jesus lived and ministered with the very people he was trying to win to Christ or win to the kingdom of God. He wasn't like uh, the big personality preachers of our day. He he wasn't uh, flying around on private jets and staying in five-star hotels and hanging out with people at Martha's Vineyard. Uh, Jesus was was really living among the people he was trying to reach and and help, and and he was extremely accessible. And and this is exactly what she was told by the people of Tyre, that, that if she just went up to him, he would be receptive to her. It's, it's marvelous to think about that, though, isn't it? I mean, even just if we cut away from the story for a moment and we just think about the kind of person that Jesus is, I've got to tell you something. Uh, one thing that has really helped my faith in the times of the deepest distress and, and, and frankly, disappointment in my life is to go look at Jesus. You know, God is invisible. 
it's, it's hard sometimes. You know, when you're down on your faith and you're doubting and you've got big problems and it feels like God is like, you know, it's really hard to persevere. And it's, and it's looking at Jesus because He is the image of the invisible God. It's looking at Jesus and how He loved people and how He helped people. And I've got to tell you this morning, if you are in a point of distress in your life, and you have doubts and you have fears, and uh, your life is riddled with complexity, it, it, you know, faith either seems to be slipping away from you, or maybe you don't even have faith, but you know you need something, I would commend you this morning to Jesus. Just go study who Jesus is, because you will know God if you know Jesus. And you will be certain that God is a God of love, and compassion, and grace, and kindness if you study Jesus, because Jesus is always helping people, and He's always ministering to people who come unto Him in humility and faith. She does that, and he slams the door. Why? That's the question. Why? And the the simple answer is that uh, Jesus, uh, at this point in history, before the cross, uh, didn't have a global ministry. At this point before the cross, he wasn't a universal savior or prophet. He had come to Israel on a divine mission to proclaim to Israel as Messiah, he is Messiah, and that he is bringing in the kingdom of God. And outside of that covenant, there is no access to blessing. The new covenant had not yet been inaugurated, which opened the doors wide to the four corners of the earth. God had a covenant with the Jews in a particular people, in a particular nation, at a particular time. Yes, you could come, you could, you could, you could uh, come into the covenant and not be a Gentile. You had to either become circumcised, or you had to come under the headship of somebody who was the inner end of the covenant. So uh, we find throughout redemptive history, uh, here and there, that some people did come into the covenant. Uh, we think uh, of Ruth, for instance, the Moabitess, the pagan woman who came under the covenant by marrying Boaz in the book of Ruth, who eventually became the great-great-grandmother of Jesus. We also uh, saw that uh, Rahab, right, the prostitute, pagan from Jericho, came into the covenant. But you had to come under the covenant somehow. You had to come under somebody who had covenant headship. And, and, and that's because uh, God was dealing with just the Jews. Here's how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promises, having no hope, and without God in this world. Turn that inside out, and you see the special privileges of the Jews. They they were members of the commonwealth of Israel. They were partakers of covenant promises. They had hope, and they had God. At this time... Before the cross, before the inauguration of the new covenant, that was the way God dealt. And so all those people who had experienced those, uh, uh, those blessings in the ministry of Jesus that we read about in the Gospels were Jewish. And they were in the land of Palestine. In the promised land during the ministry of Christ. This is a unique situation here because it is outside of Palestine and she is certainly not a Jew or under covenant headship in any way at all. And she's asking for something that she cannot have in her position. And so Jesus says to her, it's not right to give the bread to dogs. But that's what makes 
her response now so lovely and so gripping. Because in response to that, we're told, first of all, in Matthew, that again, she bowed down at his feet. The word there is proskuneo, which means she laid on her face. as an act of reverence and awe and worship. And then she said what she said in verse 28. And, and i got to tell you, these are some of the most lovely words in the Bible. Because she says, Lord, even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crops. Lord. She says, I'm coming under your lordship. I'm coming under this covenant. I'm not trying to, to unravel the divine order. I'm coming under you as Lord. And she says, I'm willing to sit as a guest in your house underneath the table and be a dog. But at least there, I am receiving the overflow of covenant blessing. She is placing herself under covenant headship. And she's saying, I realize that covenant blessings are not primarily to me. I am not a priority. But at least if I'm under the table, I can receive the scraps which fall off. I can receive those covenant blessings that just sort of spill over. I think that is just so fascinating. A woman who has barely been catechized in, in, in anything in the faith, she has true and saving faith here and she comes to Christ and says, I'm willing to be a dog. As long as that means I get the overflow. What a beautiful, beautiful faith that is. It contrasts so profoundly with what we see of the religious people in Mark 7. Mark has placed this uh, episode here in the unfolding of his proclaiming of Christ's life to contrast uh, this woman and the beauty of her faith uh, with the religious people. Because if you look in Mark chapter 7 here, you see that... uh, the religious people come off very badly, beginning with the Pharisees who, for instance, let's say here, come to Jesus in verse 5 and say, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with impure bread with impure hands? And, and you know what Jesus said to these guys? In verse 9 he says, um, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. See that? But Jesus says to the religious leaders who want Him and His disciples to come under the headship of uh, tradition and of uh, the opinions and commandments of men and don't want what Jesus has to say here. They don't want mercy. They don't want the gospel. They don't want what Jesus is saying. They don't want Jesus as Messiah. He's saying, you religious people who, who are actually the recipients of these covenant blessings, you are part of the people that Jesus came to minister to. You are children of Abraham and you are experts at overturning God's order. You are experts at not receiving the truth and overturning it and and, uh, substituting its place. Your own ideas and the place of mine and the Lord's. The disciples are also uh, people who come off very poorly in this chapter. Verse 17 tells us that 17 and 18 that that Jesus had to admonish again the disciples for being slow and dim-witted and hard-hearted. 
But not this woman. Not this woman. She's not trying to overturn the order of God. She doesn't tell Jesus that she's a special case and deserves special privileges. She says, no, I'm not going to overturn the divine ordering. I'm not asking for that. I want to be an Israelite. I want to be somebody who is considered as a, as a seed of Abraham. And I'll sit under the table to show you I'll do anything as long as I can come underneath the umbrella of that covenant and receive grace. And she's not slow-witted in her faith. She understands that bread is found only in the Messiah and only within the context of the covenant. And she says, whatever it takes to put me there, I'll be there. Because of this, then finally, we see Jesus' response. You see, Jesus' response in verse 29, He said, because of this answer, Go. The demon has gone out from your daughter. Jesus grants her exactly what she asked for. Salvation. For her and her child. She got mercy. You see, Pastor, we've been through a lot of information. Here and there in the Bible, looking at the life of Jesus. What does it all mean? There's two things what it means. There's two things that this story means to us this morning. And the first one is that faith accesses the mercy of Christ. Faith does. Faith and faith alone accesses the mercy of Christ. She is a Greek. She is a pagan. She is an outsider. She is a dog. She is exactly what all of us are outside of Christ. Depraved. Hopeless, without God, no claims to grace. No works to bring, no obedience, no uh, religious attitudes that God might see to say, I really appreciate this person's commitment to spirituality. And she is someone who understands who she is, that she's a sinner, that she needs Christ, that she needs grace. That she needs salvation. And so the main request here that she asks of Jesus is mercy. And she gets that by faith. Faith and faith alone is what accesses the mercy of Christ. You know, the good news of our passage, or rather the good news of where we stand now in relationship to this passage is that this is not a one-time, extraordinary working of Christ. This is now the ordinary working of Christ, because now Christ has a global ministry. As He ascended into heaven, after He ratified the new covenant in His blood, Jesus is now a universal Savior, a global Savior, In other words, He saves all of those who come unto Him by faith. His ministry is no longer confined to a particular place, to a particular people, at a particular time. It is wide open to everyone who comes to Christ by faith. Paul proclaims the glory of that. We've already read from Ephesians 2, but listen now what he says in verse 13. I remind you in verse 12, he said that there's some people, you Gentiles, who don't have anything. Not members of the commonwealth of Israel. Not partakers of the covenant. Having no hope. 
don't have God. Verse 13 then says, but now. But now in Christ, you who are formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, Paul proclaims a new order. It's not like it was when the Syrophoenician Greek pagan woman came to Jesus for mercy. It's not like that anymore. The new covenant has been ratified. And Paul says, but now, you who are far off, all of us, people like us here this morning, are able to be in this house of worship and trusting the Lord Jesus because a new order has come. The new covenant has been inaugurated and established. And here's why. Because of the blood of Christ. By the blood we have been brought near. Faith in the blood accesses the mercy of Christ. Faith in the blood accesses the mercy of Christ. I don't know. I don't think that this just has application to people who haven't known Jesus unto salvation yet. I don't think so. At least it doesn't for me, because as I contemplated the beautiful profession of this of this Syrophoenician woman, I, I, I tell you, I felt something for myself. But this is the kind of Jesus that I need day after day after day. The kind of person that I can come to and say, you know what, I'm just a dog. Because that's how I feel. And He'll have mercy. You know, you can be a dog and still find the mercy of Christ. You can be somebody who doubts. I bet you there's people like that here this morning who doubt the Lord because of whatever is going on in their life. You could be somebody who's got sin in your life and you know it and you're tired of it and you want to throw it off. You could be somebody who's overwhelmed this morning. You could be somebody who's so discouraged you begin to wonder whether, whether God is ever going to be merciful to you and lift the, the, uh, the period of affliction off of your life. You, you could be, dep- you could be in, in almost any kind of condition, but what you have to do is you have to uh, come like this woman did as a dog and say, I'll take what, I'm going to be a dog under the table. But my faith is in Christ, and Christ will show you that mercy. Mercy. So if you're after mercy this morning because you know that you need it, it's accessed by faith and faith alone. And so you're to take whatever faith you have, a faith riddled with doubts, a faith riddled with fear, a faith that is weak, a faith that is shaken, whatever faith you have, And you can come to this Christ. And you can receive the mercy of the Lord Jesus. And be assured this morning, as you walk away from this house of worship, that you are rightly related to your God, and that you will have the provision to live for Him today. This is truly a story of Faith, And it teaches us, first of all, that faith accesses the mercy of Christ. Secondly, it teaches us, but no less importantly, that Jesus is the hero and the victor. 
Jesus is the hero and the victor of this story. As much as I admire this, this lady, and she's marvelous, we're not to walk away from this story and say, what a wonderful woman she was. You're to walk away from this story and say, what a wonderful Savior you have. Jesus is the victor. Because what does he say here? He says in verse uh, 29, go, the demon is gone. Jesus won the victory. He cast the demon out of the woman. He won the victory over Satan, which frees us from the oppression. He's the hero of the story. He is the one that exercised his power to unseat Satan from the throne of her heart. He broke the grip of Satan on her life. And just imagine how terribly strong that grip was. Her home must have been a place of great satanic assault for her daughter to have been such a severely possessed little girl at that age. Yet Jesus is the victor because he broke the reign of Satan on her life. And that's what he has done for us. Paul talks about that in a slightly different way in Romans chapter 6. And though he doesn't use the name Satan, it's clear in the context of Paul's writing in the scriptures, that this is what he's referring to and he's proclaiming the joy of that victory that we have. When he says in verse 17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. What does this word that Jesus says here in Mark chapter 7 mean to us? Because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. It means exactly what Paul has described here in Romans chapter 6. You once were slaves of sin. You once had Satan sitting on the throne of your heart. Now in Christ you are free. You are no longer under the taskmaster of the tyrant Satan. You are free. You are free to be a slave to Christ. That's the relevance of the story. Jesus and his victory makes him the hero, and it means this morning that you partake of that heroic victory of Christ at the cross over Satan, and you are free to serve him. Here's what I want you to take away. I want you to take away this morning that faith alone accesses mercy. And secondly, I want you to take home this morning these words of Jesus to the Syrophoenician woman. The demon has gone out. The victory is yours. You say that next week as you begin to face the difficulties to your faith which challenge you in this fallen world. When you have to struggle against sin and against temptation and against spiritual assaults, you say to yourself these words of Jesus. You remind yourself of this, what Jesus said to this woman. The demon has gone out. Christ 
in his victory at the cross, has unseated Satan at the throne of your heart, and he's placed himself there as king. Amen.